Louis XIV, the subject of Philip Mansell's latest book, King of the World. Upstairs at Sandoz, Philip joined travel author Barnaby Rogerson to shed light on the life of the Sun King. Now, I was at um, a dinner with Philip quite recently, and um, one of your more outrageous friends turned to you and said, you always have hated England, and your eyes have always gone elsewhere. And I want to introduce the fact that I'm sure everybody knows everything about Philip, but he comes from um, a beautiful manor house on the Dorset coast, went to Eton, went to Balliol. You've had the best, in a way, that England could offer you, but you've always looked elsewhere. Why? Why? Well, <laughs> Dorset in the 1950s and 60s was quite dull, and everybody in the 60s looked elsewhere and wanted to travel. Some people went to Nepal on the hippie trail. I went round the Levant and to Istanbul, and I guess that marked me. And always, I mean, right across the channel there was France, and I always found its literature and history far more dramatic and better expressed, perhaps, than the little I knew of English literature. Um, anyway, it is, I would say, extremely English to leave England and to look elsewhere. I mean, no <laughs> other people have travelled so much. We had, we had groups of people from St. Petersburg to Lisbon to Istanbul, as you well know. And um, it wasn't just imperialism. It was travel and living abroad. But I'm going to um, flatter Philip by reading out um, a dozen titles that he's uh, created over the last 30 years. Um, beginning with your first book, which was on Louis XVIII, the original subject, not covered. Um, um, then on the Royal Guards. Then on that awful character from Corsica, Napoleon. <laughs> and then a study of the Court of France. And then the one that I found the most compelling was the Sultans in Splendour, your sort of history of the Ottoman Empire. And then something on the French emigres and counter-revolution, I forget the exact title. And then a study of Paris between the empires, sort of 1814 to uh, um, the Second Napoleonic Empire. Dressed to Rule, uh, quite an odd book, but fascinating, about the ritual of clothing and the red and the yellow heels. Um, um, your Salute to Europe, of um, the Prince of Europe, the Duc de La... Um, the Prince de Ligne. Prince de Ligne. And then the fabulous Levant, which was um, a study of Smyrna, Alexandria and Beirut, evolving in the 19th and the um, early 20th centuries. <coughs> and none of those touch on an English or British theme, and which we, we celebrate and love you for. And I, I publish travel books, so I don't publish much about Britain either. Um, but is this the conclusion? I feel, having, having finished and have a, an extraordinarily pleasurable time over a week with this, it's, it's, you know that it's backed literally in this case by each book you know you've written a book behind each chapter and you're and you've got so much at your fingertips do you feel this is the the cherry on the cake <laughs> that's very very kind i'm always thinking of future projects that's very kind thank you very much barnaby um i don't know i'm uh, no author can judge their own books i'm i'm particularly bad at it but it, but it, England is there. England is in Louis XIV's life. I mean, he's, he's always got the Stuarts staying. He's always interfering in British politics. England's an essential part of the European game. Very, very good at it in those days. And in my book on Paris, I hold, had a whole chapter called The British Parisians, how many British people, doctors, writers, uh, dressmakers, uh, people who wanted to save money were living in Paris then. It, again, it was part of Britishness, practically. It was said that at any one time, a third of the House of Lords could be found in Paris. <laughs> <laughs> and why do we, I'm not alone in finding Louis XIV's his court absolutely fascinating, yes. and why do we still need him, still want to read about him? Um, it's, it's because of, I think it's his, his physical and social and aesthetic energy. I mean, he was a party person. He forced his granddaughter-in-law to stop mourning and begin gambling again. In his last year, when he was 78, the party had to go on. And we all find that fascinating. I think he, he would still get drunk at, at Marley in private in, in, in old age. Um, what else? It's the, the size of Versailles, the madness of it all, mm. uh, bringing water artificially from the Seine and all that. Um, 
the brilliance of the written record, not just Saint-Simon, but Madame de Sévigné, Madame de Maintenon, all their letters are absolutely fantastic. They're, they're absolutely the top. Again, you brilliantly, as the English at that time wrote, wrote, it's not quite the same. And do you think it's the otherness for us? Because we've never had a, a builder autocrat. We've never yes. had anything of this, nor do we wish it or want it. I mean, Kensington Palace looks like a little sort of cottage yes. compared to Versailles. And um, uh, that is of the same period. Uh, yes, and it has its own grandeur that the Queen Anne simply didn't bother and yet went on winning victories. That's really quite smart. And she mm. went to tedium after tedium at St Paul's. Um, it is very other, but not totally other, because we've grown up with so many stories of Versailles. So many English people went to Versailles right from the beginning. Of course, they often mocked in the letters, but goodness me, they copied also at Hampton Court or Greenwich or bl inside Blenheim or Boughton or Chatsworth. And huh, I would say the real English Versailles is Versailles itself. It had su such an impact on England. And there's this marvellous remark by Lord Chesterfield, letters to his son, the sort of classic guide to manners in 18th century England. Uh, at your age, an hour at Versailles is worth more to you than three hours in a closet with the best books. So it was thought to teach life, to be so exciting, just observing people's behaviour and manners. And you yourself, I mean, have written a dozen books and you've helped set up the Society for Court Studies, I mean, is yes. it 20, or 20 years ago or 30 years now? Uh, almost 30. And the Levant Heritage Foundation <coughs> you've been yep. involved in. So have you ever got close to wishing to teach and to, um, to be a sort of... All my friends who went into the university system said, Philip, don't get involved. They're so depressed by the bureaucracy, the ill treatment. It used to be low salaries, they're better now. And it's the same in French friends have the same feeling. And luckily in London, there is an educated public. So you get contact with people um, more informally, less structured, less academic fashions. Uh, I go to a lot of conferences and I always enjoy them because you have this extraordinary international <coughs> mingling of people from uh, every country in Europe. Um, but to return to the sort of the structure of the book, and we begin with this sort of, I suppose, in the background to all of this as you read it, is an innate awareness that there is going to be a revolution, it's all going to be yeah. torn down. And, and so you have a sort of a sort of love of the energy and a sort of wonder how he got away with it at the yeah. time. And I find it, I just didn't know enough about um, 17th century France and I find it absolutely fascinating that the Parliament of Paris was already yes. a, almost a proto sort of Parliament yes. in England. It's not taught so well just how sophisticated the Fronde was. Yes. Can you talk us a little through yes. that? Um, and, and again, you see this Franco-British relationship, which you cannot understand one country without the other, even in the 17th century. The, the Parlement, which was a su like a uh, Supreme Court in the States, but bigger and more powerful in many ways, and people had invested in its offices, and it was employing about 5,000 people in Paris in legal uh, you know, law clerks and so on, at, at, in what's called the Palais to this day, which is still there in the place where it was during the Fronde, opposite Notre Dame. Um, they wanted to turn themselves into a parliament and they would have gone further, but for the awful example of England. They were so horrified by execution of Charles I and the Civil War that they, that they held back. And Anne of Austria was, was very uh, dexterous and she had Mazarin to advise her and somehow they survived, but it was touch and go. And people do say at the time, if the people had only known its force, they could have taken control mm. of the young king, the, the very beautiful and appealing young Louis XIV. And again, I would say it's the guard that saves the monarchy. They, they remained loyal and the queen kept control of her guard. There, there was one moment when the wicked uncle Gaston Duc d'Orléans tries to have the Paris bourgeois guard infiltrate the palace, but that failed. Um, 
But it's very articulate, the city, isn't it? You mentioned it's that very, very thousands articul- of barricades yes. built against the Royal Army. And they've got their own militia. They've got their own militia. They've got the Sorbonne, the students. It's a concentration of different institutions. They've got a very angry and confident church, brilliant counter-revolutionary priest. Said that my, the thing that most surprised me writing this book was finding out how radical and brave the French Catholic Church then was. I mean, they said everything to Louis XIV, that he was ruining the country, that he was a scandal to the kingdom with his love affairs, that the poor were living like animals and so on. I mean, they were braver than they were in the 1940s on the whole. Um, and and the Cardinal de Retz, the Archbishop of Paris, could have been a great leader, a Cromwell, because he was extremely clever and manipulative. But they held back, I think, possibly through Christian fear of violence and fear of popular violence. Um, whereas in 1789, some of the most radical leaders were the Curé of Paris. And the, the Fronde was touch and go up to the end. The Prince de Condé, a wicked cousin, very ambitious, almost captured Louis XIV in March 1652 near Gien, in the middle of France. Um, but somehow the royal army survived and people got fed up and they begged the court to come back and they saw that the princes were even worse than the king because they were quarrelling and more ambitious. So the monarchy won out. But the financial situation was still appalling, revenues mortgaged in advance and so on and so forth. And Louis XIV never really had good finances. And the other thing that strikes me in that period, there were set-piece battles with your cousins, yes. <laughs> actual yes. battles. So it was like a yes. civil war, yes. but it's, it gets sort of mistranslated as a front. Everybody gets forgiven, yes. apart from the poor soldiers or the citizens who get broken on the wheel. But these monstrous um, royal dukes constantly changing sides, constantly manoeuvring. It seems like some terribly painful game played by a tiny minority. Yes, I don't know why they were forgiven so so frequently. Easy. I don't think Richelieu would have forgiven them, um. but Mazarin had this policy of being mild, of not executing, except some of the lower in rank. Um, <laughs> and, you know, Condé had such prestige because he'd won some battles when he was mm. young. You couldn't do that. It was like executing Field Marshal Montgomery or something like that. And you describe, in a way, that there's a physicality of Louis the Fourteenth that actually, by being a young king, he had promise. And you know, yes. and and there's that scene I'm sure we all remember from our childhood, of the citizens of Paris marching through the royal bedchamber to check that he hadn't been abducted and and fled in a sort of royalist reaction. And people were half in love with him. He was a very beautiful young man and his brother. And there's this passage in the diary of Olivier Dormesson where he says Parisians are discussing who is the prettier, who is the more Mm. handsome. And the women were... (laughs) A very brilliant old French art historian once told me all the women were madly in love with the king. And I think that's one way of understanding Versailles. Of of course they were, because he could could make their families prosperous for the next 300 years. And you described this wonderful when he re-enters Paris, when he's got the young exiled Charles II as his sort of escort beside him with the royal guard that he keeps immaculate control of and all these sort of mad people like D'Artagnan and, and uh, Martinets actually existed in his yes, court. Yes, um, and it was And then he becomes a ballet star, isn't it? You tell and then us he about becomes a ballet star, yes. Uh, six or seven times he plays Apollo yes. in a royal mask. Um, yes, or three more or four hours of rehearsal every day for some of the more elaborate ballets. And it was... The theory is, oh, it shows royal control and harmony with the court. I think they just like ballet and they like parties. And it was an equivalent of Jim now. And he was good at it. So he liked showing off. Of course, he's, he's who is the most famous gymnast today? I don't know. Um, and and he goes on till 1670 when he's when he's um, 32. And then he stops, but he goes on dancing in private at Marley, this home from home next to Versailles, but where the public wasn't admitted. He goes on till 1700, till he's over 60, dancing uh, and carnival dances, dressing up in masquerades. Um, I think because he's good at it. But it is an extraordinary image to conjure with our own royal family, who are Uh. not so adept at physical... uh, 
and he, even his father did it. So Louis the Thirteenth did it, who's, who's not famous for ballet dancing, and the and the Valois kings had done it in the sixteenth century. And then something else that we should talk about is his father was openly homosexual. Yes, the third. I mean, it said he only sad was it one of his sons because he was caught in a thunderstorm and a, a hunter. Yeah, all that, yes. It was a warm bed and it turned out to be his wife once. Um, <laughs> he had this young man called Saint Mars, who is what what uh, Stephen Runciman would have called a worthless youth. But he, he uh, and plotted against the king. And, uh, but it was all quite open, but maybe it didn't go very far. And in the middle of this counter-revolutionary fervor where France is returning to Catholicism, women are joining religious orders, churches are being built, Paris is called the Second Rome. It's so fervently Catholic. You have this gay king sort of practically fondling Saint-Mars, like James I with Buckingham. And then Louis XIV's younger brother, Monsieur, is also openly gay. He had courtiers who, who it was said, bought and sold boys at the opera like horses. Yeah. And yet it goes on as a sort of counter-court, a counter-culture. Saint-Cloud, the palace that no longer exists, which was Monsieur's palace, uh, people being promoted and um, the king had to accept it because he was his brother and his main favourite, the Chevalier de Lorraine, who came into that great television serial, Versailles, I'm being sarcastic, he, he's accepted, they're accepted as a couple. He would receive the king and his court at his country house, which happened to be on the way between Fontainebleau and Versailles. Um, and it, sh it shows that 17th century France just accepted these things. Yes, in a most marvellous way that we can all, you know, that is part of the myth that works for us all, I think, of such tolerance. But quite an extraordinary psychological profile. We think he hardly knew his father. Yep. Um, very, very strong mother. Civil war, and then had this incredibly close, seemed genuinely affectionate relationship with Cardinal Mazarin, who was completely, yes. you know, a foreigner with no... Yep. Who still had an Italian accent. And, yes, I, and he falls in love with one of Mazarin's nieces. One of Mazarin's nieces. Is that a code word for a daughter, or was it a real niece? No, it, it was a real niece. I'd, I don't think Mazarin had any children, or maybe he had no sexual relations. And it's a great love story. He he sends her a lapdog with a collar saying, "I belong to Marie Mancini," meaning the king, and he plans to abduct her from a. A, a castle on the sea or through her brother who commands the musketeers but in the end Mazarin forces him to give her up but they go on seeing each other in Paris even after the king has married for a few months then she's sent to Rome she's married off to Prince Colonna and she has a I recommend the Palazzo Colonna in Rome where the gallery is absolutely magnificent, almost as good as the Galerie des Glaces, slightly better taste. And in the Colonna Palace, she's just represented as a, a difficult, disobedient wife because she runs off later. Like all the Mazarin's nieces, somebody should write a book on them. One of them lived in Chelsea, Hortense Mancini, and they run off, they abandon their husbands. Louis XIV helps them abandon their husbands in some, some cases. They misbehave. And uh, they came burdened with a diary. They came huge diaries, yes. And of course, they, they were traumatized by being at the top when Mazarin is alive, and then much less important when he's dead. Mm. And Hortense dies abandoned, except by her faithful Turkish servant, Mustafa. And now we sort of move on to the sort of the beginning of, of the grimness, um, yeah. which is that Louis XIV seemed to have no point and no relish in anything apart from waging war. And again, from our childhood, I think most of us were told and explained and excused that Louis XIV created Versailles as a reaction to the Civil War, employed his nobles in order to stop them fighting. But reading your book, I mean, he just comes as a man obsessed by, um, by conquest. And there's a yep. terrible, awful um, uh, event where they make the first connections with Siam and Thailand and greet uh, the Thai ambassadors and it seems to be going so well a thousand scholars are sent to Siam and Thailand 
All the while, Louis XIV is plotting this murderous coup. Yes. To take over. That's within ten years yep. of making connection with a thoroughly literate you know, yep. intellectual society. I mean, he is a thug let loose, isn't he? Yes. And the King of Siam gives him a lesson in tolerance, saying, if, if God wanted one religion, he wouldn't have made people so different and animals and different trees. And obviously, God loves diversity. Uh, but uh, the king says, no, you must become Catholic. And there's a very revealing letter where he says it's the best religion and the one which teaches the most complete obedience to the monarch. <laughs> um, and he is a thug let loose in Siam. And he also was planning to take over the Ottoman Empire if it collapsed. He bombarded Brussels and Genoa and devastated Genoa was particularly violent. He's just perfected a yes. new form of art, naval artillery and he wants to try it out against what was you know um, um, uh, an ancient sort of yep. independent ally city-state and then makes the Doge of Genoa come and apologize yes. for being for, bombarded for being bombarded yes and it's 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 incredible and incredible that he got away with it but he builds up a reaction against him as other super states have done since and most of Europe unites against him in the War of the League of Augsburg after 1689, and then the War of the Spanish Succession. And he has very few friends, very few allies. Mazarin left him with a Europe of allies, of French protégés and supporters. He had treaties with every country except Austria. And then by the end, the only friend left is the Ottoman Empire and Bavaria and his grandson in Spain. Um, so it's a lesson in... <coughs> and to remind us, the Thirty Years' War had happened. So France was looking incredibly powerful yes. and strong there. Its obvious rivals in the world were towards Holland and England in terms of trade. And so the first war, when he does, you know, a bit like Hitler, just, just sort of invades yep. this free um, <laughs> recent ally because he'd been yep. using the Dutch against the English in the war. Yes. And, and he's, he's not even got the guts of a real conqueror who would have gone straight to Amsterdam as he was mm. told to by the Prince de Condé and others. He sort of dithers and likes making grand entrances into Utrecht or other Dutch cities. And in fact, then the Dutch released the, the, the dams and water stops the French army going further. But he's made, <laughs> and then he makes tremendous propaganda value out of crossing the Rhine. In fact, it was very low that year. It wasn't very difficult. Um, and he really prefers magnificent sieges and a grand royal entry to pitched battles. With William III, his greatest rival, is heroic beyond belief and charges into battle and somehow survives. And I've got a lovely quote from William III um, from your book. Um, it's when he's being asked to submit by the Louis XIV. Uh, he talks about, um, I will not need to survive the destruction of my nation because I'm prepared to die in the last ditch yes. before it's destroyed. Yeah. And you have this sort of fantastic sort of balancing act between the, between the two. And, I mean, it gets worse and worse. He uses terror as a deliberate yes. military tactic. And, so and not only is he bombarding cities, he's yep. burning villages, yep. herding people in. This is not only to the Netherlands, to the Palatinate, yes. to the Rhine. He just yep. is making enemies wherever he can. And then to his own Protestants, uh, absolutely appalling treatment. Uh, one of his ministers proposed to exterminate them all. He actually uses the word exterminate, and even Louis XIV couldn't face that. But there's a lot of uh, murders, rapes, pillage, <coughs> forcing into the mouths of dying Protestants the host, the Catholic host, so that they die Catholics. I mean, complete madness, which shocked some French Catholics. Um, and I don't really know where he gets it from. He may have been competing with the Habsburgs as who's the better Catholic ruler in Europe, or it may be some extremism in his own character, some lack of balance. Well, stronger than this in the book, it, it, it comes out as a political analysis that he was envious of, yes. the, of the success of Vienna um, yeah. being rescued by Sobieski yes. and the sort of Austrians becoming a sort of glorious sort of emperor defying the Ottoman Turks. Yeah. And it's 
you argue, um, amongst other causes, this might have been one of the, yes. which is totally disgraceful. You know? Yes. And Meanwhile, he's supporting rebels against the Austrian monarchy yes. at the time, invading their territories in Europe. Hungarian rebels or, f or freedom fighters. And he's also secretly supporting the Ottomans with French agents in the Ottoman army, uh, uh, agents of observation. And later in the 1690s, it's open support of the Ottomans. In fact, he and what I would say is he can only be understood in terms of space, even more than in the context of his own time. He can only be understood in Europe, the way it's every piece fits into the jigsaw. Turkey, England, Poland, the Holy Roman Empire, France, Spain. He, he, because Austria is defeating Turkey and there's a, the belief it might collapse, he invades the Holy Roman Empire in September 1688 thereby permitting William of Orange to cross the Channel with this extraordinary expedition, the boldest uh, marine land operation until D-Day, and which is totally successful. And he lands in Devon and reaches London by December 1688, practically without a shot being fired in anger, while Louis is devastating and ravaging the Rhineland. And um, again, it's an own goal. He's enjoying the hunting season in Fontainebleau, going on cavalcade with the ladies of the court through the forest. And Will William is marching, is grabbing England, not for the sake of, as he said, of Parliament, the Protestant religion. He's really grabbing England to use its resources to redress the balance of power in Europe. So even then, we were an essential part of European alliances and uh, political factors. And um, my um, dear old father, who was a sort of Catholic naval officer and a Jacobite secretly, uh. um, one of the things he liked about Louis XIV most was th um, that he supported the um, the old pretender. Yes. But that was politically incredibly unwise because I'd forgotten, and you point out in your book, that Anne and Mary were actually half sisters from Hyde, yep. and so they were immediately sort of um, removed from the succession by that sort of that act. And it was another brilliant sort of home goal. But the, that's when we begin to possibly, some of us, fall in love with him, is that he has this respect for fallen dynasties. And he will welcome <coughs> James II, who he's fought wars <coughs> on both sides yes. against, and yes. honours him and sets him up yes. in that court of exile, and pays <coughs> for everything. Pays for everything. Saint-Germain um, and the 300 visits between the two courts. Uh, in English Jacobite duchesses have all the honours of French duchesses, very important in this days. Yeah. Um, lots of hunts and shoots, and then he recognises James III, the old pretender, as King of England, Scotland and Ireland, at a time when he's in treaty with William III, who's also King of England, Scotland and Ireland. <laughs> so, but it's all his magnificent theatricality it's playing to the French audience. <gasps> Isn't our king divine? He's yes. so gracious to royalty in distress, martyr to the Catholic faith. The Stuarts were popular in France as Catholic martyrs. Um, and whereas more cynical French courtiers like the king's sister-in-law, sister Madame, whose letters are brilliant and need a proper mo modern edition, uh, they say, oh, <laughs> once you've spoken to James II, you know exactly why he's here. Um, <laughs> and, and also, he's the stupidest man I've ever met, Madame said. Um, but he was brave. You have a marvellous scene where he's working um, early on in his life as a French officer. Yes. Attacking the Cromwellian army yes. in Dunkirk. Um, well, he's with the Spanish army then. He's Sorry. Cromwell is ally to France and the Stuarts, <laughs> amazingly, are allies to the Spanish Habsburgs, and he charges as a young, as a brave young prince at the Cromwellian forces. But I think then he had several strokes, and he's no longer the man he had been uh, by, by 1688. And you, you also point out the, it's yet another home goal. The, the Huguenots, the, by yeah. expelling them, I think 50,000 went to England, yeah. and they knew that that's what happened if you have a Catholic monarch. In the end, you're tolerated for 100 years or the most. And then, you know, so the, the whole Protestant position in, in England was enormously supported. Yep. And in Ireland as well. Yep. Um, 
and France loses these brilliant Huguenot craftsmen and bankers who helped set up the Bank of England, the great, greatest financial asset England's ever had practically, help set up the City of London, the stock market, uh, parliamentary reports. Uh, they, they Protestantize and sharpen English power. Though the Jacobites, to a lesser extent, do the same for France. They're also very brilliant assets and quite good merchants in Dunkirk, Nantes, and Bordeaux. And you point out that this is sort of turning point because William. I mean, I think the Bank of England was established to fund the those, war, yes. those wars, and we were supporting yep. for the first time an army of what was it over a hundred thousand yes. people in Europe. Yep. At the same time, France had no bank, and it was yep. a royal debt out of control in the hands of dodgy financiers, yes. no clarity of supervision. Um, yep. It was the beginning of the end of France through its lack of sort of financial attention. Yep. There, is, there is an apocryphal remark attributed to de Gaulle, oh, if Louis XIV had not revoked the Edict of Nantes, the first man on the moon would have spoken French. And <laughs> <laughs> one can believe good. it. Um, when really you meet true. them all over the world. <laughs> yes, I mean, they're brilliant people. Brilliant yes. people. Yep. And one of my neighbours in the East End is a brilliant French Huguenot who comes from the Cévennes, from the family who, who fought in the rebellion, runs a publishing company, her third publishing company, just in retirement or, or something. It was a wonderful woman. I talked to her the other day about Louis XIV, and even she was apologising to the king. Really? He yeah. said he was probably badly advised, he didn't know. And I said, you can't believe that. Yes. And it's still the sort of myth of respect. Um, a lot of Protestants, yes, thought that. Oh, it's the fault of the church, uh, oh. not just uh, of the king, and wrote it. And then there's this extraordinary phenomenon of Huguenot craftsmen. There's an ivory in the British Museum of Louis Le Grand or Ludovicus Magnus, and it's made by a Huguenot in exile. They're carving things in honor of the monarch who has persecuted them. So strong was the, the appeal of monarchy, I suppose. And then French Huguenot bankers, they had a wonderful network all over Northern Europe. They helped fund Louis XIV's war effort because the, prof, the rate of interest on French war loans mm. was irresistible. Twice what we were paying uh, in England. We had obviously 3%, which is the natural rate of payment. And the French monarchy was paying up to 6%. And one time, yes. as the wars compound and his lack of control of finance, <coughs> 50, you mentioned 50% of the yes. entire French royal revenue is used just to service the debt. So the whole thing is getting, you know, and this an explosive level of disaster. This goes um, on to 1789. Um, Louis XVI summons the States General, not because of political, economic or social discontent. It's because the government's in total debt. It's because of the financial situation. Um, and, and then he, his main advisor is a banker, Necker, of, a foreign Protestant banker. And he is the one who helps destroy, helps the French monarchy destroy itself. Yeah. And then just to dig further the dagger into the Louis XIV, the pious Catholic, we have this awful scene where um, members of the court are tortured um, for providing love potions. People are yes. obsessed about catching the eye of the king. And you say, I think 34 people were broken on the wheel, yes. executed, tortured, on a completely made up sort of what could have been a, a Viagra pill deal. Um, Probably a Viagra pill equivalent. Uh, some people thought it wasn't made up. The jury is slightly out. It's very hard to know because of all these witnesses who are tortured into giving confessions. Um, it, it was probably totally made up, manipulated by Louvois to get rid of some of his enemies and, and to do down Madame de Montespan. But the process that it, it was allowed to happen, when you compare what yes. you'd have been laughed out of court in England, if this was in it. Well, but, but um, England had its hysterical moments with the Popish plot yep, and yep. people being executed on trumped up charges, but f fewer, maybe. Um, which comes back to was one of his reasons why he's still beloved by the French and apologised because he was such a heroic lover and well, attracted women who were devoted to themselves and if they left the king they would go not to anybody else would go and retire into a convent and you know it is a sort of a extraordinary sort of male vision of possessing women giving yes. them children and then their life is never uh, the same afterwards it's very hard to tell i'm a skeptical about everything he obviously was a great lover but there's this killer remark in a letter from the Savoy ambassador who says that he's been told by the Princesse de Monaco, who is a very uh, 
flirtatious person. Uh, she says, Oh, His Majesty's kingdom is very large, but his scepter is not. <laughs> <laughs> but maybe she's just uh, um, getting her own back for some humiliation. Who knows? Uh, these people who advertise their mistresses, are, uh, sometimes one becomes sceptical. He obviously adored Madame de Montespan. And uh, there are love letters, but I haven't been able to find them. But they're referred to by the Austrian Habsburgs who intercepted them, uh, saying how, how, <laughs> how disgracefully uh, effusive these love letters are and very characteristic of Louis XIV. Um, and the shocking thing is, this is the Austrian speaking, he talks about military matters with his mistress. He's consulting her about sieges and things. So there's this amorous military correspondence. One day we'll find them. And then the Austrians end characteristically saying, thank goodness our emperor is nothing like that. <laughs> but he also knows the taste of the English crown because he sends sort of female yes. sex spies um, to you know, become uh, Duchess of Portsmouth and other things. Um, Louise de Queroual, the ancestress of the Dukes of Richmond, very, very sexy. And she is basically a French agent in Charles II's bed. And there's this uh, people very shocked. She has a grander apartment at Whitehall than the poor old Queen Catherine of Braganza. Um, all the ministers meet in her apartment, not uh, together. And uh, she makes a fortune out of everything. And the Dukes of Richmond went on perceiving attacks on Newcastle Cole or something into the 18th century. And then a, a, a wag puts a poster on her apartment door. Within this room, a bed's appointed for a French bitch and the Lord's anointed. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, she, there's a wonderful, po it's not at, there at the moment of, in the National Portrait Gallery of her with the sea in the background because she's crisscrossing between France and England and a African servant offering her coral and pearls as I think a symbol of the sea. And but there were these constant Anglo-French people who even when there are wars going on are linking the two countries basically because Paris and London need each other, trade, contacts, literature, stimulation. And at the worst moment of the war of the Spanish succession a mysterious man called the Abbe Gautier whose portrait is in Sizer Castle in Westmoreland pops up and he's sent by Harley, the Tory leader, secretly to Versailles to start peace negotiations. And in the end, the to English Tory government is far closer to the French mm. than to its Whig enemies. And Louis XIV has this remark, which really came from the heart, there cannot be too much division in England. And of course, he didn't have to help the division because the battles between Whigs and Tories were so fierce. And that's why England abandons Austria and the Netherlands, it makes peace with France. It gets a wonderful deal to the monopoly of the supply of African slaves to the Spanish colonies will go to the, an English company, not a French company. And that is when the f phrase perfidious Albion starts because mm. it's it formally allied to Austria and the Netherlands and actually in practice an ally of Louis XIV. And you talk also about the dangers of the Churchill family, um, yes. uh. where he was um, manoeuvring, John Churchill manoeuvring to become a permanent captain general of a standing yeah. army of 100,000, was producing sort of bribes to the Hanoverians. Yep. Um, it's, it's fa fascinating. This hidden factor in English history, which has always been airbrushed out, military power. Mm. the deep state where well, we know all about it we know a bit about it now but it's there and 1688 is also a military coup not just a parliamentary coup and all manipulated by Churchill head, head of James II's army and if he had a, had a son maybe he would have been even more ambitious but he didn't but he still Queen Anne turned against him partly because of his wife but also because of his ambition to be captain general for life now, we've been pretty nasty about Louis XIV, oh. deservedly, all evening. But um, I'm just con there was these impeccable sort of physical manners and, you know, his public breakfast, yep. his, his sort of attitude of, of um, going to mass publicly, six or seven hours yep. of work, 
partying, as you're saying, gambling, making certain he's always losing, shooting, endless energy. And some wonderful way he described his wife. I've given her a thousand causes for complaint. She had never given me any. And when his cousin comes falling in love with someone not worthy of um, a royal duke, uh, the king replies, I do not advise it. I do not forbid it. I beg you to think about it. Every now and then you fall in love with the human yes. virtues of the man. Um, and the war of Spanish succession, I mean, all of Europe deservedly hates him as a sort of, you know, no rule count and total aggression. But the war of Spanish succession is defending his grandson's right to inherit the throne yep. of Spain, legitimate right for once. Yep. And you, you begin at the end of his life to feel that there is a creeping morality returning to him or... Well, people, people are often much nicer when they're in a position of, when they're vulnerable than when they're mm. at, uh, uh, in a position of supreme power. And, and I think it's the case with Louis XIV. And he's helped. I mean, any other monarch would have done the same as to struggle to put his grandson on the throne of Spain, which then ruled half the world. Of course, there is still a Spanish Bourbon on the throne now. So, so Louis XIV would be very proud of that. And... But it's very clear that they make an act of settlement, don't they? That they cannot inherit each yes. other's thrones. So, on one level, it's not a yep. expansion of the French Empire. Um, but in fact, they become quite effective allies in the 18th century, and they—it's a Spanish-French-American alliance which gets the British out of most of North America in by 1783, um, and. And there's a lot of trade between France and Spain, and generally they think it raises Fr French prestige that there is a Bourbon on the throne in Madrid. Um, and, and Louis XIV never, oh, in fact, he does break down in front of his ministers, but in public he never breaks down as the Allies are getting closer to Paris. And uh, it seems as if he's going to have to leave Versailles at one moment in 1709. And there's this huge public discontent Famine, uh, terrible harvests, freezing winters, hailstorms, uh, anticipation of the French Revolution. Uh, Madame de Maintenon, who's, who never makes a cheerful remark in any of her letters, <laughs> she says, oh, the younger members of the royal family are going to see a lot of revolutions, and she uses the word revolution. Um, but in fact, France pulls through, as it often does. He had a brilliant chief of police, who you described, yes. who was this sort of totally admirable well, man who could make... The, you, I'm quoting you again. You make the um, innocent feel nervous and always <coughs> chose clemency and always made certain that each quarter there were two police agents not spying on people, making certain that the bread was cheap. And it was a sort of wonderful sort of yeah. pragmatism of sort of French authority. And we must talk a little bit. I we probably want to talk far too much for this evening. We'll quickly look at the time. Um, could we talk about some of the, his brilliant agents, the people he ruled through, and was it luck, or did he could he pick someone like Colbert? Well, Col Colbert is one of the greatest ministers in the history of any country in Europe, and nothing goes right after he dies in 1683. He gets the finances right for a time. He balances the books. He, much against his will, he advises Louis the Fourteenth to concentrate on the Louvre. Uh, Versailles is not worthy of the glory of your majesty and so on. But he goes along with it and he's encouraging these industries, some of which still exist, like the Gobelins factory, Saint-Gobain glass factory, many others. And, and a lot of his letters have been published, a wonderful 19th century edition. You see, you see France at work, or France getting back to work. And there are some factories, lace factories, for example, uh, run by women. And He's on the side of the poor sometimes. He doesn't want nobles to have the right to have these huge, I think they're called colombier or pigeonnier, which you still see, yes, around France, which would destroy poor people's crops sometimes. Um, and he was from Huguenot background? No, he no. was an ordinary Reims, upwardly mobile financier. And very good diplomats like uh, the Duke d'Arcourt, who helps get the Spanish throne for his grandson. Um, a very, even at the end, there's a good general, the Maréchal de Villar, who resists Marlborough's uh, encroachments. Um, 
and Maréchal de Villa helps make peace. There's Torcy, who's a brilliant foreign minister who arranges the peace with England, and he, he, he gets Bolingbroke to stay with his mother in Paris, and they have drunken dinners, and everybody says, yes, we're friends, we love each other. Louis XIV, even at the end of his life, says, after all, France and England are two nations from the same root. They've merely been separated by circumstances. And, and all the time doing amazing garden planning. An amazing uh, garden planning. Um, he, he was going out into the garden in January when his, it was too cold for his hounds, but the king would go out. He, he adored rearranging statues, more perspectives, more fountains. Um, so it's the greatest collection of sculpture in the world, I think, practically, is the, the Garden of Versailles. And he's consciously making certain it's in French hands and not Italian. He honours yes. Italian artists who are greeted well and treated terribly well as guests, but he always makes certain in the end it's being made and designed in France. Yep. And there's this extraordinary sculpture by Girardin, for example, The Rape of Proserpina, which is one of the finest I've ever seen, and many, many others. And Lebrun does the frescoes, Laveau does the architecture. The Invalide is a magnificent building. I fear it slightly outshines the Royal College in Chelsea. Um, We're used to he's, that. he's one of the greatest art patrons of all time. He's, he's alive to everything, literature, painting, Correggio, Bernini, uh, French uh, tapestry, luxury, the sense of luxury, of a com combination of silver, mirrors, frescoes, floors, marble walls, and using French marble from the Pyrenees, um, theatre, uh, talking, um, a friend of Molière and Racine, he's closer to Racine than I think any subsequent French monarch to a writer. Um, There's a little glib description by Matthew Pryor, again quoting Philip Mansell, because um, the Hall of Mirrors had been suggested yeah. that Hercules would be suitable in his Twelve Labours, uh. and then the King decides it would be much more suitable to have Louis XIV and his victories depicted there. And, and Matthew Pryor says, he is strutting in every panel and galloping over everyone's head in every ceiling. I mean, there is it's a relentless yes. sort of narcissism towards everything. I mean, the garden designs are, one feels, I love garden designs, but you feel that he, he's the centre of every avenue. Um, yes, they, for once we don't have stat statues of him in the garden, but maybe the long <laughs> central thing is a sort of power statement, the, the view from the palace to the canal. And the Galerie des Glaces is the only gallery in the world, I think, though probably there are some others, where only one person is celebrated, Louis XIV. Mm. More normally it's ancestors or the gods of Olympus or the family. Or, um, in in the, the Painted Hall in Greenwich, which is one of England's answers to the Galerie des Glaces, it's the whole Protestant succession, William, mm. Mary, uh, the Hanovers. And you're very, I mean, because of your work with other courts, you're very emphatic <coughs> that he knew ultimately that everything depended on the guards. Yep. And the, he, he nurses them, he knows them, he salutes yep. them, he takes their parades. He's involved um, in everything. And you draw this, because this back theme of what goes so well for him personally and what's going to dethrone um, his great, great grandson. Um, yep. Great, great, great grandson. Because he, it's a, it's a military monarchy. You, you, when you go to Versailles, a, you should imagine music everywhere. There's about five orchestras, one of which is normally performing. B, dogs and horses everywhere. It's a, an open air court. They're always going off hunting or shooting. Uh, the king loved his dogs and had portraits of them, but not of his servants or courtiers. And above all, it's a military court. There are guards everywhere. And he drills and reviews them to within a month of his death, all the time, month after month. And Louis XV and Louis says, just forget about this. Louis says particularly. And it's when the guards lead the revolutionaries' attack on the Bastille, it's yep. all over for the French monarchy. And there is this sort of deep realpolitik about him, as if he's a Roman emperor, as if he's Hadrian. Yep or Septimus Severus, knowing the legions matter, nothing else matters, yes, yes. and that the wars make them love me, or they bind yes. the dynasty with, I think you once said, you say half of every able-bodied yeah. noble, um, <coughs> half of all the men who could serve, who were nobles, were serving in the French army. In the 1690s, yes. Um, 
which is an astonishing sort of binding up of your whole nation. Yep. And in the end, that's some why, I mean, if you are French, where you have to forgive Louis XIV, because he did have this conception and he created yep. an artistic centre and he created a sort of nationalism that probably didn't exist before him. Well, I think, I th um, I think it was always, I think there was nationalism in, in biblical times or, or certainly in the Middle Ages, uh, the French versus English or French versus Germans. And but he insists that France be used when he conquers um, Lorraine, again quoting you. Yep. There is a consciousness that France is yes. now going to be, yes. the language doesn't need to be Latin or Italian, Latin yep. and German. There's something that's happening. And he's, and he's a very good manager, like a very successful landowner. He goes to visit his estate and his new acquisitions, Lille or Strasbourg or Besançon. He goes to Dunkirk five times. And it's a very, very long journey even now. Imagine what it was like then. And he kept his provinces partly by luck, but also by personal management. And Napoleon left France smaller than he found it. Louis XIV left it larger than he found it. And there's a marvellous chapter after the Fronde where he goes for a year, pretty much 12 months, 2,000 miles, yes. visits 63 yep. cities. So they see him yep. and they give him golden keys. He either accepts them or, or doesn't. I mean, there's a sort of relationship um, with everybody. Yep. Um, and then who would we, as we round up this talk and mm. open up the other questions, who can we compare him to? There's not a Roman emperor. Um, well, Napoleon, he's often compared in France, or William III, his great rival, who is in many ways a more interesting and original and successful character. Who else? Uh, he's comp he compared himself to Leopold I, the Holy Roman Emperor, his Habsburg rival. Charles V, was that a consciousness of... Um, a bit, yes. He's very yeah. conscious of the fact his mother and wife are both Spanish Habsburgs. Mm. So he's the heir. And, <coughs> but n and yes, <laughs> he's conscious of the glory of the Spanish palaces, Escorial and the one outside Madrid of Philip IV with, hung with pictures, the name of which for the moment escapes me. La Granja. La Granja. Um. Thank you. And but he, it's his artistic patronage which is unique. The fact that Molière's writing for the court and is part mm. of the court and many others. And he also knew that people were writing unpleasant things about him. I mean, he, he wasn't stupid. He, he, he knew that there was a tradition already of French memoir writers to be critical. And, uh, but you mentioned that Peter the Great, as a young man, knew yes. enough about what he didn't want to be. So he goes to London and Amsterdam to study shipbuilding and pragmatic things, and the voids Versailles is a terrible destruction yes. of, of, of a really engaged uh, renewer of his state. Um, Though later he does build a Versailles, Pe Peterhof, and later Romanovs of sort of palace building, mm. balls, parties, gambling, compulsory gambling at court, and so on, like the Bourbons. Um, and then we talk, because um, we've got a mutual friend who um, whatever you think you are, it's actually how you live your life, and particularly yes. in Philip's case, what books you write, reveal your interests. Although liberal was de uh, Philip was trying to defend himself as a liberal constitutionalist, he's relentlessly writing about autocratic monarchs um, <laughs> and their courts. And so I was trying to, before we, we met over tea next door, down the road, we were trying to sketch out some happy monarchs to share with you, apart from this wretched man, Louis XIV, for all his brilliance and attraction. And I think the smaller five good examples. The smaller German courts were really <laughs> they were quite modern centers of the arts, like Weimar or Dresden or Munich. The, the rulers of Bavaria navigated the nineteenth and even the twentieth century really quite successfully. And and um, it's a great pity that Germany was united by the Hohenzollerns and not by another dynasty. Um, and the Scandinavian monarchs, and it can be a source of stability. I think, I think the House of Windsor has been good for England in many ways. So, certainly, people thought so during the Second World War, um, and in the nineteenth century. And and the phenomenon is so interesting. When I started writing, nobody really was 
interested in. Only the condition of the working class matters, John Hardman was told. Um, and you see how he comes back in the most republican countries of all. Erdogan is a new sultan. Mm. Macron sees himself mm. as a new king. The, new, the Fifth Republic is constantly described as a republican monarchy. And, and if, and it is, it was founded by de Gaulle, who, was, who had been a royalist. Um, and it's the only regime that has really worked in France for a very, very, very long time. We were talking about that, how Ataturk was the most brilliant yep. sultan that the Turks never had. Yep. But was able to reign, as it were, from Dom Abachi Palace and from the infrastructure of Ottoman royalty. And in the same way, the French Republic annexed. No. They didn't choose Robespierre's model of living um, as a lodger um, uh, with no. someone else's children. They, they go they straight. They live in the Elysee Palace, yes. Um, Nobody knows how many people work in the Elysee Palace. There's no book has really analysed it. And I constantly ask French friends. They say nobody does say the truth and the cost. and. Uh, now, maybe we... Yes, so maybe we should um, pause and think of questions from the floor for Philip. The first question was, to what extent was Louis self-consciously influenced by Roman emperors? Well, even more than the Roman emperors is Alexander the Great. He reads about Alexander the Great. And there are lots of pictures of Alexander the Great. But also, he, Thank you. he's very consciously determined that Versailles is going to be better than any Roman palace and it's classical and it's and the colonnade the east colonnade of the Louvre is meant to excel any Roman temple ever built um, look and those poems are written look look at us we've excelled ancient Rome and modern Rome as Renaissance Rome they're rather chippy <laughs> about the glories of Renaissance Rome you know now our gardens are better than Tivoli or the Villa d'Este so you go in about his medal collection, which is obviously very much based on Roman coinage and yes. the all celebration of victories. All his medals of his self have Latin inscriptions that are sort of uh, composed by a group of savants and the, the reworkings of phrases from Virgil or Livy or something like that. Um, and his motto is, nec pluribus impar not unequal to more. The next question asked if Louis was intelligent. His letters, his memoirs are very intelligent, or oh, they're written for him by secretaries with some input by him. His letters to ambassadors are all perfectly intelligent. But he <laughs> he has the limit that doesn't mean he's unintelligent. He cannot foretell the effect of his policies on others. He cannot foretell other people's reactions. But that's very common in modern rulers also. I mean, He's, he, he makes, but he does make an awful lot of blunders, like not attacking the Netherlands when William is attacking England. One person asked if Louis's courtiers were witty and amusing, or were they stilted with their ceremony? Would Versailles have been a fun place to be? Mm. It was casual. What, what people don't... The constant remark, the king doesn't like ceremonies. It was a crowd, and he obviously had to fight his way with his stick through the crowd, to get his wife a good seat at a play. And this is constantly referred to in diaries and letters of the time. When the Siamese ambassadors come or the Doge of Genoa comes, you have to fight your way in the Galerie des Glaces to get to the king. And they don't complain of boredom. There's one revealing remark that, oh, I've come back to court. After two days, it's completely different. So many things have happened. Whereas I fear courtiers at Windsor or Schoenbrunn didn't complain <laughs> about them. Another person asked if heavy taxation was imposed in order to build Versailles. Yes, a hugely oppressive taxation that targeted the poor and nobles. It's all true. Nobles were, I mean, they did, they did pay some taxes after 1695, but it was easier for them to avoid taxes. Um, a and a huge purchase of salt, wasn't there? The compulsory purchase of salt, and um, though, though expensive as Versailles was, it was nothing like as expensive as building fortresses around France or waging wars or building ships. What well, was a fort would c 
costs about two million livres. And, and, and Versailles was much more expensive than that, but it was over 20 years, so the cost wasn't so enormous. The final question asked about good first-hand diaries from the period, those of the Duc de Saint-Simon, for example. See, I think Saint-Simon is unreliable. He writes 30 years later. He's bitter. He's an enemy. I mean, he's brilliant. He doesn't always observe the scenes he describes. Sometimes he does. And he thinks he knows everything. He thinks he knows inside your brain and what motivated you in doing something or other. There are others I would recommend. The Letters of Madame, but there's no good modern edition. The Letters of Madame de Sévigné, very brilliant, very reliable. I don't think she lies. And there's a very long diary, but I found there is someone called the Marquis de Donjou, who just says, today the king got up and went hunting at 10 and then went to mass and then he said this to Madame de, de Rohan and so on. But once you get into it, you can't really put it down because it's 20 years like that and the Marquis de Sorche also, but they're only in French. English writers on Versailles, including Nancy Mitford, they make it saner and nicer than it really was. <laughs> I mean, Saint-Simon was completely hysterical. And people said it at the time, oh, he, he's a cannibal, he eats people alive in his conversation. And he once says, only I knew every intrigue that was going on in the palace. Well, he knew nothing because he had no official job. Um, some very, but they're not in book form, but the, the English ambassadors and people like Matthew Pryor, who was a, a diplomat, they're brilliant because they sort of know it. They're insider outsiders and their the descriptions of the Jacobite court and how rattled James II looks, absolutely wonderful. If you'd like your own copy of Philip's book, then telephone or email us and we'd be happy to post it to you no matter where you are. Or if you live nearby, pop in and say hello. We hope to see you soon. Thank you for listening.